This is Simo, where we help you see more. Hi, I'm Alex Semenzato, and this is the Simo Podcast. What's up, everyone? How are you? I hope you're having a great week and an even better day, whatever you've been up to. Keep up that productivity, keep staying motivated, and keep being creative. This week, I speak with Scott Morrison. Scott fueled his passion of creativity and culture at some of the world's most demanding, creative, and culturally diverse brands, including Saatchi and Saatchi, Wyden and Kennedy, Nike, Levi's, Activision, and Diesel. And he continues to learn from some of the world's freshest startup thinkers and leaders at brands who inspire the new, the innovative, and the slightly mad. Taking all that experience, Scott travels around the world meeting with senior stakeholders to unleash the boom, hosting workshops and keynotes with brands such as Starbucks, Red Bull, Absolute, TK Maxx, and ITV, to name a few. All to think in an innovative way about their business challenges. He's not interested in the fluff and encourages clarity of the challenge and tangible actions to move the business forward. Scott believes the right people, the right environment and the right tools deliver the best results every time. I really enjoyed recording this discussion with Scott. He shares a lot of his experience and knowledge, providing practical tips on how we can all unlock our creativity. I really hope you find this episode inspiring. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Good morning, Scott. How are you doing? Good morning. Yeah, what a lovely, crisp morning in London it is today. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, really excited about this conversation. All to learn about unleashing the boom. Fantastic. So um, I think we'll have probably the, the first guest that might match my energy on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we'll Not see. to say we'll that see. the other guests have been boring, but um, I've been watching quite a few of your videos, part of the research process, and uh, you definitely get the crowd livened up, so... Yeah, looking forward to this. Do but, like to bring the boom. <laughs> there we go. Um, but we always start with some icebreakers, so let's get into it. Okay. Favourite colour? Silver. Destination you're most excited to visit? Oh, wow, that's a good question. Well, there's, ever since I went to Vietnam, I've always wanted to go back to Vietnam. Nice. Yeah, I went there last year. It was fantastic. Yeah, it's an amazing place. The thing yeah. is, I think any place that's far flung, if you do two weeks, it's just not enough. You no. need... Yeah. And I only had, and, and literally, I was, I, mean, I was there for just over a week, travelled from north to the south. Yeah. And obviously, it's very, very different. But I mean, there's so much of it untouched, and there's so much just beauty yeah. there, and so much like literal living yeah. that I wanted to do that I didn't get a chance to do. But I've never had a chance to go back. Yeah. But and the food's amazing as well. Oh, the food, the it's people. Like 50 the, fur on I the know, side of the street. I know, I know, I know. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, analog or digital? In life, or I tell you what, I've just had I've just we've just done a lot of work on our place at the moment, and and it's got to be digital. Actually, so you've gone for the full smart home setup. Not quite full, but it, it's made it's made a big difference. You yeah, know, actually, just the ease of coming in in the morning and my routine because I'm I'm a, you'll you'll know as we go through the thing. Yeah. I'm a very simple kind of guy. Right. I like to have routines in the morning, so I don't have to think about anything. And so just being able to come in and have my music on that I want and have things that I want, like awesome. really on and off and yeah. quick, it's made a total difference. So That's it. I think people, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, technology is going to kill this or do this. But I think if it can automate some of those annoying processes that Absolutely. humans have, then that'll Absolutely. make our lives I, I say automation is there to 
to do the shit that we don't need to do yeah. <laughs> so that we're free to be more creative so as much of it as it does for me I, I'm all for it so yeah awesome um, describe your personality in ice cream flavours <laughs> I love it uh, okay I'm going to say uh, well, actually one of my favourite ice creams is is from a shop in Crouch End that we have and it's it's honey rosemary and uh, orange peel, zest of orange. Love that. So actually, I'm going to use that because it's a, it's a, it's a good flavor. It's, most, it's a flavor that's got loads of zing. Yeah. Of, but it's one of those things that not everyone loves. Yeah. You know, you, it's not not so much marmite, but Quite actually sophisticated with the rosemary there as well. Yeah, yeah. And actually, you know, on, on the surface, you know, and I think I think it's like any good. You know, I kind of think of myself as a bit of a, 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 in a way that I think about good brands, which is some people will really gravitate towards you some people won't gravitate yeah. towards you and that's cool it's kind of like a, an automatic choice which is good for you and so in the, in the ice cream flavour you know you're looking through the all those flavours and then you go vanilla that'd be safe a bit of chocolate that'd be you go for that one and you go right I'm going to go for it and see what but actually it, all, it always delivers I, I'm not saying that's about, just about me but I mean it always you always get something out of that every yeah. time I have that flavour and it's always unexpected, but it's always what I kind of would amazing. Like. But that's the thing because you hear a lot. There's the sayings like, "Well, no one's going to love something if people don't hate it." Yeah, and I think true. that's it. You know, obviously the marmite is a typical case of that. But I think, as you said, it's like you know, it's it's the it's the one that you wouldn't straight away go for, but the people that do go for it would probably love it. The, exactly that. Yeah. So I'm going to go for that. Okay, fantastic. <laughs> um, you're, you're sailing around the world on a boat. What do you name it? Oh, that's a great one. Uh, I'm sailing around the world, but I, oh, wow. I just call it un, the Unleash. Yeah, well, I was going to say, boom. <laughs> yeah, oh, boom. I mean, I mean, I think that'd be quite confusing for like the captain, be like, the boom is the thing that yeah, hits you exactly. in the head. Well, also, also, I'm not sure you'd be able to, you know, be, the on, unleash, be on the radio. Yeah. <laughs> Hello, boom coming in, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like bomb references. <laughs> uh, certainly, the uh, Unleash, because I think if I was sailing around a, a yacht around the world, on a boat around the world, yeah. I would have unleashed all of my visions and things that I've to do. Cool. And lastly, just a quick fun fact about you. I was once a hand double for Will Smith in a Head and Shoulders commercial. <laughs> really? <laughs> that is genuinely true. Wow. Uh, so, head and, uh, what, so your so, hands, that means your hands are nicer hands than Will Smith's hands. Well, I think it's more the fact that my hand was the one that was available because, of all course, right. Will Smith wasn't. <laughs> and I look, uh, there was an ad many years ago for P&G when I was at Saatchi's and it was about uh, head and shoulders keeps the men in black in black. So obviously you don't get dandruff on your black suit. Yeah. And their secret was revealed by some, Will, it, was, it was supposed to be Will Smith moving a load of suits back in his wardrobe and the head and shoulders bottle appearing from a, like a little right. secret cabinet. And of course they couldn't get Will Smith to do it. Did so it, they yeah. gave it. Thing was, I was like 22. Cool. You know, living in London, poorly paid. Yeah. They paid me 500 pounds to be on the, sh on the shoot for, two hours and I ate like a king oh, fantastic treated like a star and I had 500 quid which was basically only a little bit less than my monthly wage wow so, great so it's the rich for doing like the, <laughs> the cheesiest little job in the world but it's, it's a good one for dinner parties yeah definitely that's awesome <laughs> well we are here to talk about unleashing the boom and your colourful career um, tell us about your story and what, and what you're up to at the moment should I start? Should I, should I start? Yeah, let's start from old school, uh, Scott. I think. I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels with how I thought about my career and how I think people think about their careers now. And I, and I want to encourage people who are listening to this podcast to really have you know set some goals or set some ambitions for yourself early. Yeah, and really hold true to them 
even when the going feels tough or even when it feels really hard to keep those decisions. Because I, I had two really clear decisions when I started working. One thing was that I would only ever work in cultures that were true to what I was always about. And actually, the culture that I'm propagating with the boom is the culture that I often talk about. I'll talk about positive disruption quite a lot. So I said, I only want to work at businesses that deliver that. And this might sound a little bit kind of precocious or whatever, but I said from the start, I only want to work at businesses where when I tell people where I work, they know where I work. Yeah. I don't have to say, they don't have to say what, where's that, yeah. who's that? And they might sound like, you, you know, somebody might say they're quite fanciful or a bit, that's a little bit obnoxious thinking that. Well, it's, but it's like, you've got to start with something and you've got to start somewhere. And I also wanted to have a career that was fairly modular. I didn't just want to be one thing all my life. I wanted to like have lots of different things so that ultimately I could start my own business. So I set out with that in mind. And the first job I uh, I got was a graduate at Sarchi's, which is my oh, that's absolute. Incredible. It was yeah. absolutely, and I and it's one of those. I went to a, a talk at university. Didn't know what. So the had hell you studied advertising and marketing no, at university? No, or? not at all. No. I I did English. Yeah, I did English language at university. There's a lot of you know parallels to English and obviously advertising. But for you, I mean, to go for the grad scheme at Sarchi's was that was that was like oh my god, you know that's where did that initial I want to be doing this type of career come from? Funnily enough, from from my course. So right. you're absolutely right. I did a load of stuff on like semiotics and the language of signs, and we did some things about advertising. I was like, oh, this is quite interesting. I quite like how that works and copywriting. And one of my friends came up to me at uni and said, look, they're doing the milk round this week, and there's a big ad agency coming called Sarchi's. And I was like, all oh, right, I've heard of them. So straight away, in my mind, oh, I've heard of that company. That means other people have. So anyway, I went to meet, uh, went to the the, the talk. And I and I just fell in love with the uh, with the whole thing that they you know, everything that they presented the opportunity what they were talking about the uh, Marcus Peffers and Tim Duffy I still see them now funnily enough around town and they were the two people who presented and wow. gave and I, and I was just like this this looks amazing <laughs> and I and I at that point I just said right I'm going to go and work there that's where I'm going to work they did do this funny video actually in the thing where they where they got people. Uh, from obviously marketers or just people in the street and they, and they asked them do you know any advertising agencies and they were stood next to like JWT or AMV or whatever and people were like yeah Sarchi's you know and, and the only ad agency that they anyone knew was Sarchi oh, so wow. I was like okay right I'm, yeah. I'm going there <laughs> uh, anyway so I'm, I got in on the graduate trainee program and I had the, the most incredible I mean I was there for six, six and a half years wow it was the most incredible business to work for. The most incredible. I mean, if you if you want a culture that really talks about positive disruption, everything we did at Sarge was about nothing is impossible. Yeah. And and it was as simple as that. There was no politics around. It was, no, it was like, if there is something that we need to do that's right for our clients, that is going to do what we say we're going to do, we'll move heaven and earth to make it happen, as long as it's the right thing. Mm. And just working in that environment, and and that wasn't just the output of the client work that was in the agency itself yeah. I mean we did our own TV shows we did we did all this sort of stuff that people are doing now that wow. Sarchis was yeah. way ahead way yeah. ahead and the people that were there and the you know you look at people in advertising now there's loads of people from Sarchis still around in high places in various things doing doing great stuff because I think that the, the culture and the way that they trained people there and the way that we lived there was was it just doesn't ever go away mm. i mean it was phenomenal phenomenal and the, yeah. and the only reason i left there frankly was because i was headhunted to go and run part of the nike business for widens so that's pretty special yeah it is you know i mean i i i often tell that part of my career story as a kind of a quite a pivotal story mm. for me if nothing else because 
Uh, one, of the, one of the briefs that I had when I was asked to come and work there from the MD was, we need to bring a bit more rigor and discipline and structure to the account handling because we don't have that at the moment. Well, okay, cool. I'll, I'm the man to do that. Don't worry. And what I learned from that is if you walk into somewhere and you don't open up and understand the culture before you walk in mm. and you just walk in with your own kind of view and vision of the culture, it will, the, the organ rejects, the yeah. body rejects yeah, the organ yeah, as it were, yeah. right? And then that's why I talk a lot about unblock, unlock, unleash. What I hadn't done in that cultural situation, I hadn't kind of unblocked my own thinking before I went into the organization. I just went in with a kind of, right, I'm going to unlock and unleash. Yeah. Just watch me go. And I came up against a lot of uh, resistance. And, and that's, that's fair. That's true, right? I mean, you, you know, you can't just walk into places with, you know, your kind of head of what you think needs to happen and, and, and a plan to make it all happen without having the sensitivity of understanding the culture within which you're stepping and getting stakeholders on board and, you know, learning, kind of learning the ropes and a bit of, bit of doing your time to show that you've got the sensitivity to make mm. the change. And, um, uh, and whilst it, it was fantastic, you know, we did some fantastic work and I've still I've got loads of friends who still work there and I, you know, I have a good time with it. For me, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't that fulfilling and I understand why I take full responsibility you know it was down to my kind of slight obnoxious going in point um, and that and I think that's always a good thing to learn right? I'd, I'd sooner learn that that is the case and I'd sooner learn on the job as it were well that's what I was going to say but it's, it's interesting that now um, like I guess that, that, that was that a long reflection for you not you know in the moment you thought oh wow I'm not I'm blocking first. I need to, you know, rewind a bit in the, in the matter of months or, or is that no, it's like, I've only kind of really realized that looking back on it, reflecting on it after a while. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's been a long reflection. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think in most of those circumstances, and if most people are honest, you know, if you, well, I, I left uh, Widens and not in acrimonious circumstances, but it weren't the best circumstances. And, um, you, you, your initial response is anger and, mm. like, oh, right, oh, you know, the, you, and you, you know, you go through all the six stages of grief, whatever you want to, but you know, you do, you do have a, there's a real kind of visceral feeling and a feeling that, you know, you failed or your ego has been bruised or all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and actually there's a, there's a lot, I mean, I, I you know, I talk a lot about the, the ability to learn and learn and relearn as part of a, of a creative shift, but also just a mindset shift in yourself. And actually, you know, if I look at those circumstances, the things that I'd learned at Saatchi's, which were perfect for Saatchi's, you know, discipline, rigor, um, you know, a big organization had lots of people to take care of every little detail. Yeah, yeah. I'd learned a load of stuff from that that was great in that circumstance. But actually, when you take yourself out and widen at the stage I was working, it was a 30-person startup mm. in a basement in, wow. yeah. just off Oxford Street. It's not, it wasn't in East London then. So what I didn't do is I didn't unlearn, actually, the stuff that was not fit for purpose from Saatchi's in a much smaller organisation, i.e. there's not somebody to come and check every single thing. There mm. isn't somebody to do every little bit of detail. You've got to do it all yourself. It's like going from a corporate to a startup. Yeah. And if I had taken the time to unlearn that and then relearn, actually, this is how we operate in a smaller agency with different levels of resources and different clients, then the transition would have been very would have been easier. But I didn't do, I didn't go through that process, and uh, you know, it, it takes a lot of self awareness to actually go through that process. And mm. you know, when you're probably I don't know how old was I probably twenty seven twenty eight year old, you know, know it all going around town. Uh, you, sometimes you don't you just don't you just don't 
take that level of consideration into yeah. account. And it's only later in life when you kind of, as you get more experience and you go through some different transitions and different cultural shifts, do you actually, you can work out uh, what's happening here. What's, what do I learn that, but what do I need to actually unlearn in this situation? What do I know? What are the signs that something might not be working or something might be rich to employ your, your existing learnings too. Mm. But it's only, you know, you've got to have that, uh, that much more objective view when you go into a business, mm. you know, and quite often, you know, if you, if you go in, I mean, I think interesting when you go in with a brief of you're going to go in and you're going to shake things up. Yeah. That gives you quite a subjective hat. Yeah. Right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. Rather than actually what I could have done is been much more objective and gone, hang on a minute, what does that really mean? What does that mean to people? Let me ask people what, it, what yeah. do they need? Yeah. And, and it's to say, you know, I mean, I talk about it from a very personal experience, but I, when I'm working with businesses and organizations and teams, I ask teams and businesses, are you doing that right now? Like, what, are this, what is the stuff that you think you know? Let's call it business as usual that you've learned. You've got this issue, this challenge, this problem, this puzzle that you've got to solve. Why are you just applying that same old learnings? That this is how we've always done it here. This is, yeah, you know, this yeah. is just the way we do things. Why are you applying that to a fundamentally very different challenge? And what do you need to unlearn from this? And what do you need to go and speak to your clients and customers about or your teams about to help you think differently about how you solve the challenge? And it's amazing, you know, how, how, how sometimes we infrequently do that. And actually when we do do it, we get really different results. Mm. Um, so it was a massive learning for me and one that I've sort of taken into my business now mm. as a, you know, you can look at it and go, well, actually, that's what happens quite frequently mm. in business now and for individuals. So, I mean, I do coaching as well. So I'm always asking these questions of people. Have you got a new role? Have you got a new puzzle that you need to solve? Are you putting new solutions in the market? Have you got a new product? Okay, what are the things that you're thinking about? Yeah. What, do, what do you need to maybe unlearn and relearn? And then from there, you went to Diesel? No, actually, after that, I uh, went to a small agency uh, to do to help actually build out a marketing business for them, and that led me to become uh, the marketing director for Levi's. Oh wow, cool! Uh, and that was my first client job. So I, I actually I made a conscious decision. Was it, what is that? Of, what is that like transition like? Is, oh, it, well, is it scary? There's, a, there's another learning in itself, right? Um, <laughs> but I, a lot of people do it, you know, and I can understand yeah. why. But it's pretty cool. It's like you know, you go from agency side to client side, but like. Is it is it is it scary? <laughs> uh, it's, do you know what? It's, well, it's completely it, it, different. It, it, it is completely different because yeah. I think one of the I think one of the things I was working with an agency yesterday, and they identified this, and and it's quite true. You know, when you, when you're in an, in an agency, it's quite easy to think that all the client does is think about your stuff all the time. They're always thinking about your work, oh, yeah, your yeah, problems, yeah. <laughs> you know, and they can't wait to take your call, and they can't <laughs> wait for the next status meeting, and blah blah. blah. And actually, when you're a client, you realise that. You don't ever think, you know, you've got yeah, 10%. Like an afterthought, it's yeah. totally, it's like, <laughs> I do this diagram, right? I call it the Pac-Man, um, I would call it the, the, the Pac-Man um, paradox, which is, there's kind of a view that, that if, if you draw Pac-Man, right, and you know the little mouth bit, the mouth is slightly open, right? That, that mouth that's slightly open is, is really the amount of time that a client has right. with their agency. But the agency perception is the reverse. The agency right. perception <laughs> yeah. is that the Pac-Man <laughs> yeah. is how much time that, yeah. you know. And I thought that when I was a, an agency as well, by the way. So it's not, and actually, when you, when you actually see the reverse, it's quite a shock. Mm. But then if you divide the Pac-Man mouth into, I don't know, 10 agencies, that's when you suddenly realize in any given time as a client, you might have 1%, 2% of your time to focus on the agency that's working with you on a yeah. challenge. Because everything else is dealt with. I was on the board. I, you know, I had stores to look after as well. I had visual merchandising teams. 
I had meeting after meeting. We had, you know, we had all sorts, politics, you know, managing politics. Yeah. Um, and so when, you know, when I used to think back to when I used to ring my agency and be like on the phone for half an hour. And, you know, you build good relationships, but then you'd be like, yeah, so why don't we just do a meeting like this afternoon? And the client be like, no, nah, I can't do that. And you're like, oh, come on. Come on, what else are you doing? <laughs> yeah. you, know, you suddenly realize when you're the client, um, you know, that, that, and there's a, there's a lot more, you know, you need a lot more commercial savvy. You know, you, you, you've got to be much more commercially minded. You've got to know your way around P&Ls. You've got to know your way around business, the language of business. You've got to know your way around... How can I help convince the, the board, the FD, various people that what I'm proposing is right? Mm. You know, you're not just dealing with, you know, you're not just dealing with a marketing director at an agency. So you've only got to sell it into one person who actually gets what you're talking about anyway. Yeah. But you try selling in uh, a heavy investment into something that's not got an immediate ROI, uh, that's really going to drain the bottom line to an FD who doesn't understand marketing. And, and, and frankly, sometimes is not all of them, by the way, but I mean, is sometimes, frankly, totally opposed to marketing. Yeah. Sees marketing as a, as a cost center. Yeah, so yeah. I want to reduce it as much as possible. So you, you learn a, a whole new set of skills uh, in being a client. And again, it was a, it was a big transition because I... But well, that's something that you learned on the job? Or? Totally learned well, on the job. Well, that's amazing, yeah. That's <laughs> totally great, learned yeah. on the job. And, what, and the funny thing is, what I learned at least. But if you have people around you that like support or like, you know, believe in you and then kind of, you know, almost are there to make sure you don't fuck up. But like, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. Kind of like... Oh, I had a wonderful, uh, a wonderful boss who was the European marketing director, Rachel, who was fant- fantastic support. Um, you know, there are loads of people actually who support because... For them as well, they, they, they bought something in from an agency. Yeah. So for their perspective, they took a risk, but they rallied around and helped support me a lot. Yeah. I think what was great about that experience was, A, it was a brand. I mean, we, tur- we, had, we had a job. We had to turn the Levi's brand around, which is what we needed to do across Europe, funnily enough. And we succeeded in doing that. So I learned a lot about how you turn around a brand, how you turn around a business, more importantly, mm. which you can turn around brands at an agency. But how do you, how do you marry all that up with turning around business? But then I also realized that I had lots of gaps in my knowledge. Yeah. You know, you are, you are working with or, you know, competing with, let's say, marketers who, you know, tr- uh, you know they, they may have come through, they're classically trained in many cases, let's say, uh, you know, and there's lots of really, really good marketers who are more qualified than I, or just had a, maybe not more qualified, because I don't want to put anyone off who thinks going, for, you know, if you want to go from agency to client, it's not about your hard qualifications. It's about how quickly you can adapt to the perspective of being a client. Mm-hmm. And I felt that I could adapt quicker. And I wasn't necessarily going to adapt quicker at Levi's because there wasn't the level of intensity of financial rigor. Because of the role, not because of the business, by the way, but because of my, my role was working with the European team to help deliver in the market. Um, and that's when I moved to Activision. And Activision, very, very different business. Uh, Actually, the interesting thing about computer games, right? So I went to a computer games business because I'm a gamer at heart, right? Anyone will tell you that. And I thought, oh, wow, great. You know, most of my, most of my day... <laughs> testing out games. Testing out games. <laughs> kind of my naive beauty. Uh, and I remember, I remember having this really... Right, rig, let's call it a rigorous conversation with the, the European CEO, who was, by her own admission, by, by the way, she was a ball breaker, but an absolutely brilliant ball breaker. Not a petty ball breaker, Someone who really would test you for all the right reasons. So I had this, we were, we were launching Spider-Man, right? A Spider-Man game. And it, we were doing a marketing plan and I'd put in there, right, okay, let's just spend 30 grand on Marvel Comics. Right. 
So anyway, we're going through the presentation. We had all this other big stuff to discuss. Yeah. And we got through that and then we got to this bit in the, in the, in the marketing meeting. And I almost sort of breezed across it. Yeah, we're going to, and she, what, excuse me, <laughs> question. I was like, yeah, okay, Trisha, what, why are you spending £30,000 on Marvel Comics? This is out of a £21 million budget. Right, right yeah. <laughs> and we had a 45-minute debate about it. Now, at the time, I was like, this does not make any sense why you're doing that. But what I learned, and I think what I think is brilliant about that is, of course, on paper, of course it makes sense to make that kind of decision. But actually, what she was trying to tease out, and what I always encourage when I'm speaking to everybody I work with, is sometimes those little decisions that you think, oh, yeah, that, they totally make sense, might not make as much sense as you think they make. And if you're applying them to those things, then what else are you applying them to? If you're right. not applying the rigor right the way through the, through the thinking, then what else aren't you applying the rigor to? If you do that 10 times, that's 300,000 quid. Yeah. And her point was, you've done all this other stuff here, and our, our objective and ambition is to recruit new people into the franchise. And all you're doing is spending money recruiting people who are already bought into the franchise. And I'm not sure that makes sense. If you had 30, this good question, if you could deploy that 30,000 pound elsewhere, how would you do it? So she wasn't saying, go and do it. She's saying, how would you do it? Yeah. Go and think again. And I loved that. And the rigor that happened in the business really tested my mettle on how the, the, I'm massively passionate about how do you in a business join dots in yeah. new ways? Yeah. And I learned incredibly from her and from the people in that business how you join dots in new ways. Mm. Because we turned a business that was, let's, for all intents and purposes, it was a big business, but it was still, you know, gaming was wasn't on a par with Hollywood. It wasn't, you know, it was a kind of a growing, still a bit nerdy. Yeah. Now, you know, we worked on Call of Duty, Modern Warfare. We, we launched Guitar Hero. We did, we, I think systematically have transformed, not, not me, I mean, we, the business yeah. and that industry and, and the kind of the work that well, we Well, yeah, it very much is Hollywood now. It's Hollywood like, now. A new game comes out, it's massive. Oh, yeah, and the, and the amount of money that's spent on a game, making a game is, you know, the same as they'll spend, if not more, they'll spend on a yeah. Hollywood blockbuster. So it's fundamentally transformed the gaming business from, you know, bedroom to blockbuster. And I, but I also think that the way that that was done is, is through real rigor. It's the application of real data, understanding numbers, understanding trends, understanding, but applying a real level of creativity that helps you join the dots in new and interesting ways that brings stuff out into the market, that mm. challenged the perceptions, you know, because it was a fundamental perception shift. And also... You know, with new technology, and everything else, you know, people were uh, in the old days were paying one pound ninety nine for a game. <laughs> you know, or the Spectrum. Yeah, mad. And That's now like 60 quid. people are paying yeah. sixty quid for the game, and then they're paying, paying plus, paying more, plus yeah. more. And I'm not saying all that's right, by the way. But what I'm saying is, it, you know, it, the, if the intent is right, you know, if you're if the intent is to provide more a, a deeper entertainment uh, experience for people, then I think that's where it's succeeding. Mm. And I think that's, you know, that's... That's interesting though as well. It's like, we obviously now, you know, with that, obviously the price evolves, but therefore it's almost the brand is expected then to provide, you know, better and cooler and bigger marketing opportunities or experiential activations and things like that. You yeah. know, to almost kind of match the brand because it's like... Totally. That's why people then, you know, that affinity is... is a. I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think that it's almost incumbent on the gaming industry now that because they do create these massive spectacular entertainment things um, that they, there's some element of giving back and, and creating more entertainment that's, that's actually, frankly, I think should be at no cost, you know, yeah. for, you know, much more 
giving back because you know I know the markup on gaming. <laughs> you yeah. know, I know the margins. You yeah. Know? And I know how easy it is to create things. And I and I do get worried a little bit when I, you know, think about kids growing up spending parents' credit cards to you know because then you're creating another addictive sort of thing which we don't yeah. really need to do. So I think like with anything, there needs to be a degree of thought about how we have joined the dots up by the way and actually how can we join them up again that's different different so that we're not creating this kind of addiction or this mm. you know overt spending of money but actually people can enjoy this stuff a little bit more at no cost that's a weird thing as well i mean you know when we get to the point where you know there's obviously drink aware and gamble aware like we're going to get to like gaming aware that'd be pretty uh i think pretty I think, crazy because i mean yeah I it's, we not, it's obviously mobile games people are addicted you know yeah. Well, you know, we'd probably get to mobile aware at some yeah. stage. <laughs> I mean, you can do anything, right? Yeah. I mean, anything's. And of course, uh, the the, the industry or the press will focus on the extreme examples. And there are plenty of people who are, you know, I don't know what the percentages are, but let's say 80% of people, we just apply the 80-20 rule. Mm. You know, I suppose 80% of the people are quite possibly just use, average users of everything. And there's yeah. 20% that drive all the revenue and all the everything else. Um, so, you know, you, you can't always just try and do everything for the minority in you know and, and ruin everything for the majority of people but at the same time you know you just don't know where that tipping point is mm. you know everything you know i mean i just look at smartphone usage now and if i just did my little poll of when i used to walk down the street five years ago how many people would bump i would have to sort of avoid <laughs> or, or 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 click yeah. my fingers is what yeah. i do sometimes yeah, it is crazy to, to now it's ten times. You know, I'm literally. I'm just walking here. You just got people crossing the road, looking at you know, not even paying attention. So you could say, well, something might need to be done mm. because actually, there's a there's an actual physical risk now. Mm. Um, but but yeah, like like anything, you know, if it gets too, if you join the dots and you configure a system in one way, but that system gets too far one way then you it's incumbent on everyone to join the dots again because there's always another way of joining the dots so how do you join the dots in a slightly different way to rein it in a bit so that it doesn't become quite so compulsive or addictive and there was it diesel then from Arctic. yeah yeah and then that that seemed like a pretty big role that you know kind of taking all of those dots joining <laughs> and all kind of that experience to to then be at diesel for quite a while yeah exactly i think you know i was at diesel for six years and i you know i had it, it, the same amount of time pretty much as I was at Saatchi so I bookended my career with two cultures that were absolutely rooted I mean all, all the cultures were but yeah. I mean those two specifically the idea of only the brave and for successful living you're really at the heart and a, and a brand that is at the heart of it massively creative mm. always wanting to be positively disruptive some of the work we did some of the stuff we did um, and the team that I had there were incredible my boss Johnny uh, incredible Renza, the, everybody that that you kind of worked with at Diesel, and still now, you know, you know, kind of, you know, if you meet people who worked at Diesel, you know them, you know, yeah. you know them if you meet them, you can see they have that, that kind of quality that obviously Diesel. Yeah, and and they're, they're all, you know, they're just really creative. They think that the most important thing I think about Diesel is like like any big brand, like lots of people would say to me, oh, you must be able to do anything you want at Diesel because you've got loads of money to spend. Yeah, and then I'd say, well, you know, if I if I told them what my marketing budget was, they go, what? That's, how do you make such a disproportionate amount of noise for that amount of money? And I always say to any brand, and any, you know, just because you've got loads of money in your marketing budget doesn't mean that 
you're going to spend it and deploy it. Like Trisha, you know, like Trisha was saying to me about Marvel and Spider-Man. Yeah. Like, just because you've got loads of money doesn't mean you're going to spend it correctly. But does that force you to be more creative? Absolutely. I guess it does, yeah. It, it, it absolutely <clears throat> forces you. I mean, I remember we had this discussion in 2008. We just relaunched the brand and we did the Be Stupid campaign. So yeah. people who might remember it. And our whole mindset in the business, going back to joining the dots in different ways, was, okay, if the world is smart and doing these smart things, what does stupid look like? And of course, it wasn't about stupid as in jackass. It was stupid as in, if you do this, people are going to say, that's just stupid, it won't work. But we've got the confidence to believe it will. So it's mm. not like, you know, nailing your thumb to a table or anything. Yeah. It was, it was, you know, doing something that was more lateral than doing this, the literal thing. So one of the conversations I remember we had was when the recession hit in 2008, uh, we obviously got our marketing budget and... The world was, you know, I mean, remember the recession and you know, I literally was walking around London and just seeing people sad, yeah. you know, literally people and posters going up all over with like uh, recession, disco or, you know, all these kind of events that were happening <laughs> yeah. around where people were sort of almost celebrating this, but trying to perk people up. And I, you know, I always say to people, like, get out of your office and like, see what's really going on in the real world. If, you, if you're going to do any thinking, don't just sit there and cogitate in amongst your team, get out, see what's going on. And as I was walking, I was going, hang on a minute. We're a brand that asks a lot of our consumers. We give them a lot, but we ask a lot. You know, we're asking them to spend money on jeans. We're asking them to come to our events. We're asking them to uh, buy expensive product. What happens if we, instead of spending our marketing budget on the stuff that we normally spend it on, how about we give it back to our customers? How about we, any, all the diesel lovers, we give, we, we give the money back to them. But clear, and, and that was the seed of an idea. We started talking about it as a team. And of course, rather than, you, you don't just obviously give them the cash, but it was like, we decided that we were going to spend all of our money that year, all our media money, all our, every spend that we, we did was going to in some way create a free experience for our diesel lovers. Whether that was in store, whether that was with our magazine partners, whether that was with our radio station that we created. And we set about doing this kind of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't over, overstate it as being philanthropic, but it was a, a, a very different marketing approach. You know, in, in that world at that time, it was like, spend more money, make more noise, discount everything. And we were like, no, 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 actually just give back. Just put your arms around the people that you love, yeah. you know, your, your brand lovers, your loyal people. And it was, it was phenomenal for us. I mean, I mean, it kept our business steady over that period. And actually we got, it was an interesting model because we went to speak to all of our, titles all the magazine partners all our poster partners everyone that we worked with our media partners they were like yeah cool actually it gives us a chance to be more creative so rather than running ads in i don't know dazed or in id we ran 15 page editorials with them about people about events that were running in our store where we got diesel lovers and we got famous hat makers or you know famous people we we had them um, bands like totally totally enormous extinct dinosaurs that were big at the time they taught a load of people in store how to dance and then they put those people in their video. That's so you know, cool, so people yeah. just got this kind of mad experience. And we had our radio station that was, uh, we had a load of uh, kids from Liberty, which is, uh, gives disadvantaged kids, yeah. especially in South London, gives them a chance to learn new skills. So we, we got some ex-producers from radio, from BBC Radio, got kids from Liberty. They came in, they got trained at how to be music producers. They ran the radio station and we got a load of acts, acts that we could never have afforded on a budget 
they came in and did a radio show because that's all they wanted to do. Yeah. And then as a result, we had a pop-up restaurant in there and we gave all our store staff came down on a Friday night. We'd have, the band would play live, we'd do a letter radio recording. <laughs> so Everyone cool. would be happy. Then we'd do a pop-up <laughs> restaurant, pop-up meal for the band and their friends. We just created this whole buzz. And, and actually, we won, we won an award for it, which was particularly rewarding, not for me, but for the team, because actually what it taught me about that sort of thing is when you, when you, whenever you think of an idea, think of something big, uh, and you think this is quite visionary and whatever else, instead of holding on to that vision for yourself, give it to your team. And then, then you understand whether it's a vision or not. Because if your team go, yeah, do you know, that's great. I know exactly how we're going to, I'm going to go and do this, but I'm going to do this, which is what my team did. Then you know it's a real vision. If mm. people are walking away and rejecting it and going, no, you know what, that's not, that's not ambitious enough or that's just weak or whatever, I'm not buying into it. You haven't got a vision. And if you try and commit people to a vision that they don't believe in, they'll never, you know, you can't stand in front of a business and go, this is what I believe in. Here's my vision for the business. Going back to the Saatchi Widen thing, right? And, and then try and action it when you're pulling people, pulling teeth out of people to get them. To, they won't do it. So if you really want to you know, lead in that way, share whatever your thinking is. Get people to build on that thinking. Get them to own it. Empower them to own it. Get out of the way and let them run it. And my team literally ran it. I mean, mm. they were unbelievable. The, the, and, the, and it was literally idea every day. Idea, 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 idea. We're going to do this. We've got this person involved. You know, we had some incredible people involved. How do you, how do you manage that though? Because I think sometimes there is... I mean, I love it. I love being kind of creative and, you know, working towards kind of marketing messages or campaigns or things like that. But how do you, you know, to have all these ideas and like, you know, it's amazing, but then how do you filter or like channel that creative creativeness, you know, to, to ensure that stuff gets, does get done and things do happen? Yeah. Uh, well, from an individual perspective, uh, one of my most self-aware moments is that I'm not, I'm not a great doer. <laughs> which is hard when you run your own business yeah. uh, but when I when I was a CMO I, I was never uh, the world's greatest doer I would do but it was I, I didn't really enjoy doing it and yeah. I think that was a throwback to when you're an account executive and you do everything yeah. so you kind of like you know what um, <laughs> so I always had a brilliant right hand person you know and at Deez I had a wonderful right hand person Sophie and, uh, at, and at Levi's I had Mel who was wonderful and my all my teams were wonderful but you know always have someone who is right by you, who you can literally say, here's what I'm thinking. And they'll call the bullshit. If it's bullshit, they will. But they'll, if they love it, they'll go, actually, yeah, I think that's, that, there's something. And they'll go and take it and make it real. Um, and then your role then as the leader is to, to literally steer the tiller. Uh, is that right? Steer the, yeah, steer the ship. Steer the ship, yeah. yeah. Um, and all that, all that means is again just being clear on the kind of decisions, the the filters that you're making mm. when you make when you make these kind of calls. I go back to my sort of original point. If 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 your career is about, I will only work at places where people have heard of, yeah, and I'm going to work where cultures mirror my own. Um, that sets a, a really clear set of decision criteria, so that when something comes, if, if somebody offers you a job somewhere and, and no one's going to hear it, you won't go and work there. Yeah. It's really simple. The decision's made for you at that level. So I, I always build those kind of decisions, you know. For example, in the in the uh, be stupid stuff that we did, the Diesel School of Island Life, it, was it was it going to be free at the point of use for our, of our end consumer? If it was, if it wasn't going to be, then we wouldn't do it. Yeah. If it was, then okay, first tick right now. Then 
does the idea fit around? Is the idea stupid? I mean, does it is it is it juxtaposed against smart or is it stupid? Thumbing nail, thumbing nail onto table. If it's if it's smart or thumbing nail onto table, we don't do it. If it really is stupid, like visionary thinking, like Renzo selling old jeans, uh, you know, ripped textured jeans, when the market is all about straight jeans, um, then we do it. You know, so you just build almost like a checklist in your head that's dead simple, and then it becomes really objective for everybody to make the decisions. So you're trying to take as much subjectivity out of the creative decision making process as you can. Um, and of course some of it is down to like visceral you know you kind of once you know all that stuff you've kind of got and you know you know the brand you go is that diesel or not you know there's all that kind of stuff going on as well but if you want to help people make decisions and you've got to be able to do that anyway because when you you've got to think about your succession planning you've got to think about how do people make these decisions when I'm not there Mm. Uh, how do you empower them to to make those kind of calls you've got to have a kind of a criteria that people can own and use and apply so that when they come to you with stuff, they've already gone through six checks before. You know, otherwise you just you write. You know, you get this kind of like fire hose of ideas. You've got to pick each one out and go. Mm. Well, is that, you know, you've got to do it. Cognitive load, CMO, it's just too much. Yeah. Then nothing happens. Yeah. Going back, going back to that, like um, obviously big, big brands like Nike, Diesel. You know, they obviously have these huge marketing spends, um, and a lot of it is to kind of affect the bottom line and drive ROI and things like that. But initiatives like that giving back or kind of you know initiatives that are essentially building brand awareness or equity that don't have a direct link to selling product how you know is that just like a an accepted pillar within a business or i guess what i'm trying to say is for smaller businesses or people that might be listening to this that want to do those cooler things but trying to convince their fd that's like well no this is a cool initiative you know we should do this because it will create awareness but you know we can estimate how many leads or whatever we might get but you know, it's not guaranteed that they're going to buy the product. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the. I mean, to be to be clear, you know that that initiative, yeah, clearly a kind of a, was was from a very top line level, the thinking that drove the, the whole marketing plan. But there are elements of the marketing plan that were, you know, like for example, very measurable on how do we drive footfall, very yeah. measurable on. Uh, how do we convert basket? You know, we have basket spend, and you'd have tr- unit per transaction. So there were some things, there were some mechanics that simply have to operate. And then, of course, you've got uh, we, we started to ramp up very much our digital presence, our online presence. So there, there were there were elements of the marketing mix that previously hadn't necessarily been measurable, that suddenly became measurable. Right. That you can throw into the mix and say, well, this is going to happen. Um, the 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 other way of kind of looking at it, because some of it, you know, you're right. You know, when we do, when we do, when we did big brand campaigns, and you're investing a lot of money, the the marketing, the, the ROI on it is at best, you know, we're going to reach this many people, and if we got this many conversion, you know, on a, on a, on a kind of a non-digital thing, mm. um, the way that we sold it in was actually t- to do a kind of reverse psychology thing, and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, as well as doing all the numbers that we knew we could do and, and that would that keep the lights on. The idea of this bit was, well, what's the cost of the business if we don't do this? And Oh, interesting, yeah. And, and the cost of the business if we didn't do it from a Stay relevant during that period of exactly, time. Exactly, was yeah. we would lose relevance. Yeah. We would just be doing exactly the same as every other brand, which was not the diesel way anyway. Um, we We didn't have enough 
marketing spend to make a disproportionate amount of noise if we played the same rules as the rest of the marketing world because everybody was talking you know everyone was ramping up you know product offers and retail offer all this kind of noise that we just wouldn't cut through anyway so you've got to try and join the dots again in a different way you've got to find another way of communicating and mm. you know what's a, what's a better way of communicating than offering a different set of value back to your consumer mm. based on observing what the need is of the world at that time you know like people wanted brands to give back people wanted brands to give them experiences people wanted to to actually have a bit more fun for nothing uh and what other brands were doing that i observed that moment in time was pushing more pushing more product onto people spend more buy more because if you buy more we're all going to be saved and you'll feel better about buying more and people just didn't have the money yeah people were scared yeah and you know i was having this discussion yesterday about brands you know whether we like it or not, brands are the new, I don't want to be religious, but church. Let's just call church in the kind of like... Well, I agree. Sense. I mean, it's something that yeah. I talk about a lot of the panel discussions is this whole notion of that, you know, in a kind of unstable political climate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, with not much kind of going on for kids to aspire to, like brands like Nike or Adidas, um, you know, they are really they ultimately are kind of creating these platforms to drive positive change. Yeah. And the reason why I named those two is because, you know, they, they are the brands that you see and probably there are many others, but like, you know, actually kind of, you know, doing very localized community initiatives or yeah. kind of giving back or also they represent probably, you know, the, the football star that the kids look up to and yeah. there's this whole kind of cycle. Yeah. Um, and then there is that whole notion, which is another great dis discussion topic around kind of that fine line between, you know, a brand engaging with the community uh and also creating like authentic kind of social storytelling is it just to drive sales of shoes or are they doing it to kind of give back yeah. um and then when does a brand you know are, when is it not authentic i.e cultural appropriation or they're kind of just tapping into community just for like a one kind of hit, hit spike of a marketing campaign and then they'd leave leave yeah. that community so yeah. quite a few things there but <laughs> so i tell you it's a moral maze now as a as a cmo you know how you navigate through the existing climate <laughs> yeah. of everything from diversity and inclusion and in its broadest possible sense which is fundamentally good yeah um but can be fundamentally done badly if yeah. you get it wrong, yeah. right? And, you, and and it's the the call is down to, you know, I think with all these things, you have to take a temperature check on what's happening in the world, in your market, yeah. in your, you know, you can't, you can't just take the advice of lots of people who think they know what you should do. You've got to speak to your people. You've got to speak to, you've got to understand your audience. You've got yeah. to... You've got to get out. I mean, you have just got to get out of your office. Yeah, that's it. And get yeah. out of your business and get out and get look at other sectors, look at the world, look at uh, and 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 find what it is that's authentic to you and your brand, but at the same time addresses the issue. Because sometimes you don't have to do anything outward; it, it, it's all inward at, at the start. Because I think you can't you can't project an outward thing if you don't. You know, the minute you go out and say, "Oh yeah, we're really this and we're really that," and then somebody goes, "Yeah, but hang on a minute." <laughs> Yeah. Look at your supply chain. Yeah. Or look at your board. Or look at you know, 
Well, that's it. I mean, that's the thing. The big diversity issue at the moment is that you get a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of discrepancy in the ad world at the moment, whether it is authentically talking to the LGBTQ community or, you know, empowering gender equality or, you know, still the racial issues that there are. And then it's like, well, there's three kind of cisgender white (laughs) old guys in suits that are calling the shots. I mean, it's just crazy. And I know know nobody's, you know, there's no kind of time limit on these things. I, I get it. You know, it's kind of it's going to take time. It's evolving for the positive of good. People still get pissed off, but like at least positive change is happening. Obviously, exactly. there are the kind of the you know the people that you know really put their kind of stake in the ground and say no, it's still not good enough. But I mean, I think you are seeing a lot of change, which yeah. is which is at least going to the right direction. Yeah, but I I, I I totally agree with you, and and I think the, the only the, the the only watch out is of course you you can only change some parts. You know. You, there's so many issues now. There's yeah. so much stuff that, you know, I find that actually, you know, back to my, how do you make decisions based on creative ideas coming at you? How do you make decisions on what you back and what you don't? How do you make decisions on what you talk about and what you deal with? And, and, and not about whether you deal with it or not, but what priority in which do you deal with these things mm-hmm. and what's most important for your people and your teams and your business and your customers and work your way through it. But you've got to have some kind of checklist because, you know, the minute... You, you know, you can't accommodate everything at once, but you have to make it, you have to be clear on what it is that you are accommodating and why, and and go right the way through. You can't just, you know, I sort of speak to people and they say, oh, we're going to do a diversity inclusion half-day workshop for all our people. I'm like, well, really? I mean, I don't do any of that. I don't do those. I don't agree with that, to be honest with you. It is not a one-half-day thing. Oh, God, it is yeah. a. It is a... It's, it's a it's a big cultural it's part shift. Of strategy, yeah, yeah it's, you, you've got until you're having that discussion around the boardroom, and it's in, and it's absolutely embedded in what you're talking. Yeah. about you can just talk. You know, it's just, you're wasting money. Yeah. Um, but it is, you know, change is good. Change is upon us. Change is happening, and we need to do more of it. But at the same time, there's always the caution of you try and change too much too soon without bringing everybody with you, and you won't change anything. Mm. So I'm conscious of time. We've about 15 minutes more. Um, I'd love plenty of time. Yeah, plenty no, of time. no, no. It's, go on, um, start asking. For you. No, no. It's just because I'd love for you now. I mean, I guess it's been absolutely fantastic to learn about your career journey, and you know that makes so much sense now to bring us on to what you're doing as your day job at the moment, which is hosting Unleash the Boom. Uh, you're traveling all around the world with this, your keynotes and your workshops and your consulting. Um, I'd love for you to kind of give give me the, the pitch of what that is and, and what are the, some of those practical tips that you're conveying across Great. the world. Yeah, let's keep, I don't want to give a pitch like per se. Well, you know what I mean. We're friends now. Yeah, We're just yeah. Talking, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I think the most important thing I'd say to people is... Uh, the, the principle, there's two principles that drive me and particularly drive the boom. Uh, and, and one is my, my, my heartfelt cultural thing of positive disruption. I talk about positive disruption as a, as a genuinely as a force for good. And I talk about that from a leadership position, a brand position, organization position. So when I'm talking about leadership and how you make change happen, I'm always talking from a positive disruption perspective. And, you know, I've, I've, I've seen how great that is from Saatchi's, Nike, all the brands I've ever worked with and other brands that are out there. When you do positively disrupt, and I've got kind of a process how you do it, but it's very different from just pure disruption, which can be negative and can be coming from the wrong angle and can be disrupting the wrong things. Positive disruption is a much more self-aware, more considered, and ultimately more impactful way of changing 
business, changing organizations, changing the world, let's say. Um, so that's one core principle about how you do it. But the, the actual operating system for the boom, so the way you go about doing all that is really, really, it's three words, really, really simple. Unblock, unlock, and unleash. And I apply that operating system. So if you're a leader in an organization and you want to deliver positive disruption, the way to do it is unblock, unlock, unleash. And that goes for your people and your one-to-ones with your people and your leadership style and your board, but also all the way through to how you think through your diff- your business, joining dots in new and in- new and interesting ways. And then how on a day-to-day level you really solve those tricky, I call them challenges. And you know, you break challenges down into puzzles. You fall in love with the puzzles. And when you know which puzzles you want to fall in love with, you then go about solving those. So all this kind of way of thinking is what I go around the world talking about activating, working with big businesses, putting it into their businesses. They're using it as their operating system for how they think through things and, and deliver creativity. And the results are, thankfully, really, really positive. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely amazed because, I, as I said earlier, I'm a very simple sort of person. Right? And the thing about Unblock, Unlock, Unleash, how I got to that was, I think earlier when I was saying about how you make change, do anything, in, you know, change, whether it's changing uh, perception, changing behavior, changing culture, or indeed uh, changing the way you solve challenges. Uh, I found that in every business I was at, we were all very good at unlocking new ideas. And in any business that you go into, you'll find that we're great at unlocking new ideas, right? You get a brainstorm and everyone's got an idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but invariably, what happens is one of two things either you know, everyone comes out of a brainstorm, go, ah, oh, that was amazing. And then a week later, they go, oh, fucking hell. We've done none of that. Yeah. All that stuff. What happened to it? Oh, it's on some post-it somewhere. Or oh, I tried that. It didn't work. And there are two pivots as to why that doesn't happen. So in the first instance, why on block is an incredibly important part of the process is because until you unblock loads of different things. So in one instance, I talk about, have you unblocked what success looks like? Do you know what success looks like as a team when you deliver what it is that you're looking to deliver? And if you don't do that, for example, everyone's got a different interpretation of what success is. So everyone goes off in their own different kind of silos and in different ways and nobody aligns around it. That's one bit of unblocking. And the other bit is, what are the, what are the blockers? What are the behaviours, the processes, the tool? What are the things that are going to get in the way? What are the things that are stopping you doing what you're doing, what you want to do now? Because if you don't understand what they are and talk about them, they'll just come back and bite you when you put the ideas back into the business. That's what happens. Coming up with a big, nice, shiny idea, put it in. And because the processes are broken or because nobody thinks that way, they never land. Nobody makes the ideas happen in the first place. So unblocking is important. Unlocking is about, we say creating ideas, but looking for inspiration from different areas, looking way outside of your business. In the book, you know, Creative Superpowers book that I co-wrote, you know, Mark Hurls talks a lot about uh, thieving, copying, taking ideas from other learnings and ideas from other industries and things far away from your own, repurposing for your, for your own. I do something called street wisdom, where I take people out on the street to find inspiration that they never thought of before, which has opened up you know, CEOs' minds and exec boards' minds to really different thinking, getting out into the world. So unlocking is about how do you unlock inspiration, think about those puzzles. And then the, the, other, the other part, which is really important, is the unleash part, right? Because that's the thing that when we walk out of a brainstorm and you go, right, we're going we're gonna to create a rocket to the moon, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, people come up with these big ideas. Nobody's broken that idea down into its constituent part. Into its constituent so how are we going to get to How it? are we going to do it? Yeah. You know, you, you, I have a startup as well called ThinkSprint where we have loads of experts around the world, specifically on UX, who help businesses 
break down the UX uh, products and propositions and they give incredible feedback in 24 hours and help them make it better, make it better, make it better. And, you know, what I've learned from all that is actually when you're creating ideas, how do you create the idea, you know, the thing that you've got, how do you turn it into its kind of MVP, minimum viable product, smallest possible way that you can test the idea? And the more that you do that, the, the, the better the thinking is because it makes you really think about uh, what does it take to make this happen. Um, and so I create canvases to help people break ideas down into constituent parts. But then you can have lots of ideas and you can test and learn lots of different ideas. But it's the rigor of breaking the idea down into what's the smallest way that we can test if this is going to work or not. And when you do that as a team or as a business, so you unblock the old thinking and we'll actually start with unblocking success and block the things that are going to stop you from getting there, unlock ideas based around various techniques that we have, and then think about how you unleash those ideas into the world or into your business or whatever, and you might have 10 or 15 of them testing and learning them. It's incredibly powerful because we'll, we can do that in a day and we can do it in two days. And then, of course, then you, you go away and you start testing and learning on the ideas and we come back and we go, right, how are we getting on? What, what are we still blocking? What's still blocking us? What's, we keep going through that process at speed, mm. hence the name, The Boom, um, and it makes absolute change happen in business. Um, and, you know, I, I genuinely believe that with everyone I work with, all the businesses, the knowledge is there. People know. But it's about giving people time, space and tools to get the best out of the solutions that are sitting. You know, you go around to anyone in a business and they'll be able to tell you what the challenges are in a business more often than not. They'll be able to tell you how they might go about solving it. But it's how do you get the rigor into a, into a business? How do you stretch people's thinking and stretch their minds? They might be thinking about it like in a very small way. How do you make them think big about what a solution could look like? How do you make them really understand what the challenges that they need to, the puzzles they need to really solve and fall in love with? How do you make them think about what could scale look like when I create this solution? So it's all about that's kind of what I and go the day, and the day is it not is it is it creative businesses or is it is it all types of it's businesses? all types of yeah. businesses I, and is I, it all is it just the marketing functions or is it also like you know the commercial element or the whole it's, teams it's that, the whole I, yeah. I work with I mean fundamentally I work at board level so yeah. I'm working and I enjoy that because actually you know you do have a lot of disparate thinking in a board you've got everyone from a, a you know FD HR um, who might not be involved in the mechanics of the everyday but nonetheless are massively important in how the, yeah. the business operates and then you've got, you know, marketing and sales. Traditionally, you know, let's just say two uh, departments that <laughs> clash, you know. Uh, you know, you've got a CEO who's got to kind of look at over it all. You've got a CTO sometimes. And you've got, so you've got a, a whole variety of people. Um, and, and always what's interesting is, you know, when you start doing the unblocking sessions, it's great because... Once you get people to align around all the stuff that, that is blocking them in their business and you break it out into processes or behaviors or whatever, mm. you've got all the people in the room who've got the opportunity to make that change. And in, invariably, you know, if, you, if you're just working in silos and you know, the further down the business you get, the more siloed it becomes because, you know, it's degrees of separation. If everybody at the board level is aligned and everybody understands each other's thinking and everybody owns, takes ownership of how we change the way that the business operates... The business does change. Yeah, massively. Yeah. Um, and so I love, but but and then you know, but I also love. I often just work with a marketing team, or I might just work with a sales team, or yeah, it you know it kind of the principles are the same. The principles work for all different departments because the principles of I think great creative problem solving and join the dots. 
really evolve around those three those three words of unblock, unlock, and unleash. What are you excited about? What's what's the future beholding? Oh, I mean, there's loads to be excited. I mean, I'm I'm quite excitable in many ways. I, you know, I'm really what's really exciting me at the moment is that. I'm oh, another well, excited or, or curious about? I guess. Uh, oh, that's good. That's that's good. Well, I tell you what, I'll tell you on both. So I'm excited about the fact that. You know, I'm now doing more global stuff, which yeah. really, really excites me. I've just been, been to Australia and just back from there, working with 60 different CMOs with the Marketing Academy, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, there's there's opportunities to go to China. I'm going to New York. And so I'm, I'm doing, the, the vision for me was always to be global and to do more global stuff. Uh, and also with the book, Crypt Superpowers, that's helping there's kind of a good business card as well because people are buying into the. We just launched in Japan and the, yeah, maybe know, just do a quick because we haven't even talked no, about the book. For, yeah, the, just the, a one liner on the book because I think a lot of people would be useful for them. Yeah, the, the the book is about you know we are now in the age of creativity. You know, people call it the fourth industrial revolution, but it's never been a, ta- a better time to be creative, more creative than than ever. We are all creative viscerally. We are all creative, and yet we often forget about our creativity and we forget about what it feels like to be creative. And um, I even talk about, you know, what's happening in the world is that consumer expectation is ramping up massively. And the old, the old way that consumer expectation was just kind of a linear line. Now it's exponential. It's huge. And in, in the gap between those two things is, is disruption. Um, and the businesses that are being, that are doing, that are creating disruption in that gap are the businesses that are being creative, creative in their leadership, creative in their thinking, not creative with a big C. I'm not talking about like, Van Gogh sort of, you know, type creative thing. I'm talking about joining dots in new and interesting ways, looking at businesses and going, actually, how can I build a better business? How can I? And it might be incremental. It might be a subtle change. It might, but the the subtle change in the thinking helps to lead, you know, think about Airbnb. It's a subtle change in how you rent out space. Yeah. You know, the, all the dots are there. Well, that's it. Someone said it's like if there's um, in your daily routine, if there's something that really pisses you off, or you think that there could be something that you know could help me, uh, you know, make this problem easier, so, then that's a business start, idea. Yes, exactly. <laughs> start there, and it and it and it it feels like you know you don't have to be, uh, you know, a world-renowned creative director ever to come up with these ideas. Yeah, that exists over there, and that's the scary thing is lots of people think when when they think about creativity, I've got to be one of those people. But no, you don't. Airbnb, you know, yeah. anything we talk about, just a smart way of joining dots in new and interesting ways leads to a massive, you know, change in the way that business operates. Um, well, what's cool about the book, though, is Creative Superpowers, and it's it's kind of co-authored by loads of different expert people that have come together to kind of give their voice. Absolutely. So, that, so yeah, so back to the, that, that point, the, the skills that people are using, we've identified, we spoke to loads of different people, and found that actually the four skills that people are using to help bridge that gap, to help be more creative in their leadership, are hacker, maker, teacher, and thief. And the book is all about how do you hack more? How can you... Teaching is you know, about how do you learn more, learn, unlearn, and relearn. This classic quote from a guy called Toffler, Alvin Toffler. Um, making is about actually putting stuff out into the world. I'm doing this thing at the moment with ITV, for example, and what I'm learning is that Amazon are putting out, they've put out in the last four years 40 different products in the world of tv and and broadcasting and you go well why are they putting out 40 different products that's just silly isn't it it's, and people say well because they can it's like no no they are doing it because every time you put a product out you think about a, a customer need they create and see if that product meets that need and if it does they make more of them wow, scale yeah, it. if yeah. they if it doesn't they go well we know that's not going to work so we won't do it again yeah 
and their and their competitors are doing nothing. So they're yeah. just owning more and more. But like to A B testing on scale, exactly. Right? Yeah. With like human behaviors though as well. It's not just like an iteration and an app or something. No, exactly. It's like it, building product. Yeah, because yeah. exactly. they can, well, yeah, they can afford to do it, yeah. but. But it's smart, and, and actually, the more physical product they have in, in your home, the more that they own your home. Yeah. And then, as I was saying about Mark, Mark Elsey's bit about thieving, it's all about how do you take thinking and learning from a different sector than your own, or from a, I don't know, from a, a rock star, or from anything that that might help you think about your challenge in a new and interesting way. And if you take lots of different solutions and repurpose that into your own. Uh, into your own challenge then you can come up with some really interesting solutions at speed rather than having to think of everything for yourself mm. and start from scratch you go actually a bit of that a bit of that a bit of that actually why don't we put this into the market and see if that works or not mm. so it's all that's what the book is about and then we've got loads of people writing about how they do that in their everyday work and how their experiences have changed the way that they operate and how it works in the world and, it, and it's been phenomenal, you know, it's, it's been really... How did that come about? Was it just you, you and a bunch of mates had an idea to put the book together? Or? Uh, no, we, I think uh, uh, Daniele Fiendarka, who um, brought us all together, had already done something previously, another book, quite, quite similar, but the, the, the idea of a conference, we, we, it's been described like as a conference, yeah, conference a book. But yeah, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, so there's lots of different voices, so you can dig into it at any given time. And that's how I was... And I guess, yeah, you could read kind of what's maybe more applicable to you. Exactly, or what, at yeah. any given time. And you yeah. can just read one chapter on the tube, yeah. you, you know. And that's what I've always loved about... I always find that with business books is, you know, you get halfway through and then you don't read it for two days. And you go, yeah. oh, no, I've it's like a textbook really lost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I feel like I've got to go and do my revision. Whereas this, we always wanted it to feel much more uh, like a conference in a book. And, and so, yeah, he, we, we were having lunch one day. He said, look, do you want to do part of the book? I said, yeah, I'll do teacher. And Mark did, Mark's always written about thieving and copying. So he did that. And Laura, obviously, she did make because that's part of her DNA. Uh, and we all came together and, and got our people to write the book, write the chapter that we wanted to. And, and then the book, you know, it's one of those things with two and a half years. Amazing. And you, at some stage, you think oh, it's never going to happen. And then all of a sudden, it was like, oh, wallop. Here's the book, you know. That's pretty and, cool. Have a book in your name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I say it's, it's been, you know, the good thing is it's been well received. And do you think that's been, kind of helped provide a platform for you to do your, uh, your world uh, travel? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I think you know, I think writing a book, it's a it's a good discipline, and I, you know, it's hard it's work. Good PR hope that, that is. Yeah. PR. <laughs> uh, but also, it, it really does help you crystallize in your head what your philosophy is and it gives people the shortcut to your philosophy i always think you know when people read that book i might talk about stuff on stage whatever or talk about things but actually when they read the book they go all oh, right i get it yeah because yeah. there are people yeah. who have used that stuff and and so it makes sense so i think it's almost like a good follow-up for the stuff that mm. i do as well as a bit of a pre-read in some cases but yeah i i mean that you know back to our what am i curious about i'm curious about whether at the moment I want to write a. I want to write a book. Yeah, uh, and a separate book about boom and I, about boom and about the boom and about how all these kind of philosophies. And I'm curious about how to do that at the moment. That's what I'm getting really curious about, and also curious about uh, what else. Because this, you know, I I'm always conscious. I can't scale myself. That's and yeah. I, that's not my intention, right? My intention is it's going to be me. The boom is about is is my business. I have another business that's more about you know teams and growth and everything else the other side this is about what i want to do and what i'm passionate about and so i'm always thinking to myself okay how do i do more of it 
How do I get myself out there more? You could create like your own like online like portal. Where it's like it, videos exactly. of you and people yeah. paid, you know, to do your 10 steps to whatever exactly. it is. You know what I mean? You kind of got, I, I want to get over the kind of narcissistic <laughs> feel of that. <laughs> but also make sure that it really is value because I see a lot of these things, you know, you get them on Facebook and people are like, oh, here's my But not many people have heard about Anish the Boom, so you're happy working for Anish the Boom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I, oh, I it's full circle there. That. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very good point. Uh, yeah. So yeah. I've, I've, well, it's funny. I've got to make it a business that people, you know, kind of want to work. And people with, know. Yeah. People well, you're know. doing that by so, spreading the message yeah, around the world. Exactly. Anyways, we're sadly coming to the end of the episode, which oh, is a real really shame because I mean, really I could sit it. here for three hours with you. <laughs> um, but the last two final questions for yeah, me: for um, just you and your daily routine. How do you stay productive and motivated? Uh, the secret is. Uh, it, it is actually true is really blocking off your day yeah uh, I, I'm very kind of fastidious about my time so it's like do that for an hour do that for an hour break do something for an hour do something for an hour know when you're not going to be productive and don't even think about trying to do anything in, I, I, I know if I'm back at home at four o'clock so I can get up at eight take the kids to school whatever, whatever the time is seven get the kids to school go to the gym come back do four or five hours of full-on solid work, yeah. you know, with, with breaks, and I'm done. Yeah. And then after that, you know, spend time with my yeah. wife, spend time with the kids, you know, do all that. And then I might do something again in the evening if I feel a little bit productive. Yeah. But I think the secret is don't ever feel guilty for those moments where you feel you think you're not being productive because the world is doing other things. They're the moments where you, that's why you do what you do. If you run your own business, this is why you do what you do. You're being productive in other ways, whether it's with your family, with your kids. Just being productive, in fact, resting your brain is sometimes just pro is productivity in itself because your brain is cogitating, cogitating, cogitating. And, you know, eight o'clock at night, you might go, ah, oh, right, I've got it. Yeah. You know, or you might be at the gym, ah, oh, right, I've got it. But people, sometimes when you start your own business, you got you, you get told this kind of startup porn and all this kind of, you've got to work 23 hours. Yeah. And it's like, no, you don't. Yeah. It's not productive. So be honest when you're at your most productive. Believe that that is the case. Test it a bit and see what you need to tweak. But in your down, to take your downtime. Awesome. And lastly, how can people find you? Uh, uh, my website, uh, unleashtheboom.com. I am on LinkedIn, Scott Morrison, FRSA. And I am on Instagram and Twitter as Scott the Boom. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, it's Alex, been it super time. having you on. And uh, yeah, look forward to speaking again soon. Thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. Cheers. Thanks for listening. I hope this podcast can intrigue, inspire, and provide some key tips and tricks for a lot of people. I would really appreciate your help to grow the community. If you know anyone that you think would enjoy this podcast, then please send it their way. And if you can subscribe and leave a review, it would mean so much and it really supports the show. Thank you and see you next week.